while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swallowing cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swallowing cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. The word of the Lord. Morning, Whitefields. Good to be with you again this morning. You know, one of the reasons why we're switching it up is just because worship is a response to God's goodness. Worship is a response to all that God has done for us. And so sometimes it's good to kind of mix it up and maybe after hearing the word of God, then we worship and take communion in response to that. So uh, let's bow our heads and pray as we get into God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to receive the seed of your word. And we pray that it would be good soil. We pray that, Lord, as your word comes into us, Lord, that that it would bear much fruit in our lives. Lord, fruit for your glory. Fruit that shows that you are the greatest treasure of our lives, Lord. Our all-surpassing, all-satisfying greatest treasure. Lord, let your name be magnified this morning as we hear your word. Lord, let your name be magnified in our lives. And we just ask this morning, Lord, let us be good hearers of the word. Let us be doers of the word. And Lord, we pray that your joy would fill this place today. That your joy would be manifest in our lives and in our church. And we pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today is the third Sunday of Advent. Um, you know, Advent is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. You know, historically in the church, Advent is a time when we focus on the coming of Christ. So what we've been doing for Advent is a teaching series um, called A New Day Dawning. And this is a series in which we've been talking about the coming of Christ and the kingdom of God. We've been talking about the coming of Christ, the first coming, when he came as a baby, born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And we're also talking about how that points us to the second coming of Christ, when he will come again at some point in the future to rule and to reign, to establish his kingdom. So uh, what we've been talking about, again, is the coming of Christ and what that means The coming of Christ means the coming of the kingdom of God. So we've been discussing over the last couple weeks what exactly is the kingdom of God. And what does that mean for us? 
uh, what we've seen is that the kingdom of God is essentially, it is the restoration of shalom. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to check out that teaching online. We talked about the meaning of this Hebrew concept of shalom, which is basically the flourishing of life. It is the absence of sin. It is life the way it was meant to be lived, and it's the absence of sin in all of its effects. The kingdom of God, the restoration of shalom, this was the hope of Israel. This is the central thing of the prophecies. When you read prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, they all center around a kingdom. Just like the one we just read in Micah. It's all about a king who will come and bring a kingdom of what? It says he will be our peace. He will be our shalom. So that's what we've been talking about. You know, the kingdom of God is also not only what Israel longed for, but as Christians, this is what we long for as well. I'm sure you all heard about the, the tragic shooting that happened in Connecticut on Friday, you know? And it's events like that when we, when we say, come Lord, we, we want the kingdom even more. We long for that to come even more. You know, when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he established, he introduced the kingdom of God to this world. And when Jesus comes again at some point in the future, we don't know exactly when, but when he comes again, he will come to bring the fullness of the kingdom of God. So this series we're doing, it's a five-part series which will culminate on our Christmas Eve service on the 24th. And each of the teachings actually corresponds to the meaning of the candles on the Advent wreath. You know, one of the traditions at Advent is that we, we light candles, one more candle every Sunday, until we get to Christmas in which we light the center candle, which is the Christ candle. And there's actually a lot of really rich symbolism in this. Um, you know... Jesus is portrayed in the word as the light of the world who comes in to dispel the darkness of sin and death. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of light, right? And the, the coming of the kingdom of God is compared to the, the dawning of a new day. And so we see the symbolism in the wreath, right, being that as it gets brighter and brighter, it's, as it gets brighter and brighter as we get closer to the coming of Christ. It's the dawning of a new day. So each of these candles, the first one we talked about was the prophecy candle. We talked about the hope of the Messiah. The second one we talked about last week was the candle of preparation. We talked about being prepared for the kingdom that's coming, the revolution that Jesus brings. Today we're going to be talking about the third candle, the shepherd candle, or the candle of joy. And then next week is the candle of love, and then finally on Christmas Eve, the candle of Christ. So today our topic comes from this third candle on the Advent wreath, which is the shepherd candle, or the candle of joy. This morning we started our service right by reading uh, from Luke chapter 2. This is the story of the shepherds, right? They're out in the fields, some angels show up, and they bring this message. They say, they say we have good news of great joy for all people. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. What is this message? It's good news of great joy for all people. In our study today, we're going to break it down like this. Number one, we're going to be talking about joy in the midst of darkness. Number two, we're going to talk about joy for all people. And number three, we're going to talk about joy that overwhelms. So, joy in the midst of darkness, joy for all people, and a joy that overwhelms. You know, this last week, as I, as I usually do, I studied during the week and I prepared my message. And, uh, and I had a pretty good idea about what I felt that the Lord wanted me to share on the topic of joy in the kingdom of God. But then on Friday, you know, around noon, I opened up my laptop because I wanted to add some notes to my, uh, to my notes for this sermon. 
And uh, the first thing I saw was this post on Facebook from one of the members of our church here about the shooting that happened in Connecticut. And, you know, the first thing I think is, you know, not again. This is just too much. Not another mass shooting. This is just happening all the time, you know. How many times is this going to happen? You know, there were two of them this week. There was one in Oregon, you know. A guy on Tuesday opened fire with an assault rifle in a mall in Oregon. And then, of course, on Friday, this, this terrible, tragic, evil, this rampage of this guy, you know, shooting little children. I mean, we don't even have words to describe how terrible that is, how horrible that is. And I'm thinking, you know, as, I, as I'm doing that, I'm thinking, how can I preach a message, how can I preach a sermon about joy uh, right after a tragedy like this? Doesn't that, doesn't that seem a bit aloof, Right? To stand here and talk about joy in Christ while there's dozens of people who just, their children were murdered right before Christmas? I mean, doesn't it seem a little bit disconnected from reality? Dozens of families are mourning and suffering, and when we gather here to talk about joy? You know, think about all that's gone on in this past year. The, the, The shooting in the movie theater in Aurora. They got the murder of Jessica Ridgway literally just right down the road from our town, you know. Um... We have people in our church suffering with tumors and, and infections that threaten their lives. And how can I stand up here and talk about joy of all things, right? It's like we're standing in a war zone and bullets are flying and people are getting picked off all around us and we're having a conversation about joy. I mean, doesn't that seem a bit inappropriate? Or doesn't it seem, if nothing else, doesn't it seem a little bit odd? Doesn't it seem like we're not really dealing with the reality of life, with the reality of the world around us? So again, these are the thoughts that were going through my head. But what I came to realize as I was, as I was thinking about this, as I was reading this story, right, that, that, that we read earlier, is that actually, uh, this is exactly what I need to preach on. This is exactly the thing that is the most relevant thing that I could talk about for our situation today. It's talking about joy and the kingdom of God. Because think about this. This is the story of the gospel. This is the message of the gospel. It's a message of joy on a backdrop of tragedy and, and, and darkness, right? But on the backdrop of darkness, what do we get? We get a message of joy. I think about the story we read just now in the Gospel of Luke, right? These angels show up, they appear to these shepherds, and they tell them, you know, behold, we bring you good news of great joy for all people. Christ the Savior has been born in Bethlehem. This choir of angels sings, they praise God, they're rejoicing. But what is the backdrop of this? What's the big picture of what's going on while these angels are appearing and proclaiming the message of great joy? The backdrop is darkness, right? The backdrop is not only physical darkness, it happened at night. That's, if nothing else, that's symbolic. But, but look at the darkness of the situation that Jesus is born into. The big picture, the setting is oppression, occupation, dictatorship. Jesus comes into the world to bring great joy to all people. But what's the first thing that happens after he's born? Herod goes on a rampage doing what? Killing babies. You know, that's the backdrop. You know, innocent 
little children losing their lives. That's the backdrop of a message of joy and rejoicing. And Jesus and his family, what happens? They become refugees, right? They run away to Egypt so that Jesus won't also be killed. They become refugees. You know, I worked in a refugee camp for, for years in Hungary, and I, 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 I heard somebody say that once, that, you know, Jesus became a refugee. And that became something that I would always tell those people. You know, Jesus became a refugee. But yet we have this message. What is it? Good news of great joy for all people. But it doesn't really just stop there either, right? Throughout the Old Testament, or sorry, throughout the New Testament, we read about these people who come proclaiming this message of joy in Christ. And then what happens? John the Baptist gets killed. Paul the Apostle gets beat up and left on the side of the road to die. And then He gets thrown in prison. Almost all of the apostles get killed uh, for their faith. Countless Christians get persecuted, tortured, mistreated, but yet they still keep talking about this Jesus Christ that he came and how this is actually good news of great joy for all people. And so that's that's the thing I want you to see, that in the midst of great darkness, they keep talking about joy. And so here we are today, Again, we're in the aftermath of, of another great tragedy in a world where, where more and more we realize that there's nowhere where we're truly safe. And what are we gathering to talk about? Joy. That in Christ there is joy unspeakable because in Christ there's a joy that outshines the darkness. And that's the message, that the joy of Christ outshines the darkness. The gospel message is a message of great joy for all people. And not only is it great joy for those who suffer in this dark world, but it is especially a message of uh, a good news of great joy for those who suffer. And the question is, how can the gospel be good news of great joy for someone who just lost their baby? How can the gospel be good news of great joy for someone who has a terminal illness or a sick family member or loved one? How can we even rightly talk about joy in these situations? Well, here's how. Because the joy we're talking about when we talk about joy in Christ, right? The joy that the angels sang about on the first Christmas. It's not joy over what is happening to us right now, but it is joy over what is going to happen because Christ has come. The joy that we have in Christ is intimately tied to our hope. See, that's the thing you got to see, that joy is tied to hope. Our hope in Christ is the cause of our joy in Christ. The joy that's found in Christ, it's more than just a superficial feeling of happiness. It's more than just a plastic smile. The joy that we have in Christ is a deep-seated sense of satisfaction. It's a deep-seated sense of hopefulness. You know, the dictionary defines joy as the emotion of great delight caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying. And what that means is that opposed to, as opposed to the feeling of happiness, right, joy, the joy that we're talking about here is rooted, the, the joy that's rooted in the gospel, it's not dependent on your circumstances. Rather, it's based on the hope that we have in Christ. And that's why it's able to be a deep lasting, stable, satisfying joy that isn't shaken, that isn't taken away by even the most tragic moments, by even the darkest moments. 
That means it's possible to be sad and grieving, to be suffering while at the same time have joy in the Lord. Because it's that stable, lasting, deep-seated sense of satisfaction and hopefulness. You know, that's why the gospel is good news of great joy to all people. Even to people who, who are suffering loss, even to people who are suffering with sickness, even people who are having a rough time of it. It's joy for them. It's especially joy for those who are surrounded by darkness. Because the coming of Jesus means that the light of the world has come and a new day is dawning. The night is almost over and the day is at hand, right? You know, the gospel speaks into the real world in which there's real suffering, in which there's real darkness, and it gives us joy which outshines that darkness, Because it's not based on the temporal things of this world. It's based on the hope of our redemption. It's based on the promise of the kingdom of God. That with the coming of Christ, right, a new day has already begun to dawn. And in this new day, sin and death are a thing of the past. They're going to be a thing of the past. God is making all things new. The Bible says it, Bible puts it in these words. It says that we eagerly await for that time when we will be set free from the bondage to corruption and we will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what we long for. Am I right? We long to be set free from bondage to corruption that characterizes this world. We, we long to, over the past few Sundays, is that the kingdom of God has come in part, with that we have joy in Christ, the joy of salvation. It's something we have now in part. Because through his death, right, through his death on the cross, through his rest, he's placed inside of them his Holy Spirit to lead them and guide them and teach them and transform them. So in Christ there is joy in our salvation now. But our joy will be complete when he comes again And we experience the kingdom in fullness. You know, that's why the psalm writer, he says this, You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So my question for you today would be this. Do you know that joy? Do you not know, not just know about it, do you know it personally? Do you know it intimately? Do you have that joy that the angels sang about? That the angels proclaimed on that dark night, on the dark night of the world, right? The joy that those angels spoke of on the first Christmas, it was joy for those in the midst of darkness. Because it's joy over what is going to happen because Christ has come and is coming again. And the only way you can have that kind of joy, that kind of deep-seated satisfaction and hopefulness, the only way you can have that stable, lasting joy is if you believe the gospel message with your whole heart. Not only was it joy in the midst of darkness, but it was joy for all people. Notice that we, we read now in the, in the story again, we read about these shepherds, right? These shepherds, they, they hear this message of great joy. They go to see the baby Jesus, but they're not the only ones who came, who traveled distance to see Jesus. You probably know about the other group of men who also came to visit Jesus. They were wise men from the east. They traveled a great distance. They brought gifts, expensive gifts to this newborn king. And not only did they give him gifts, but we read that they bowed down and worshipped him. 
This is what it says about the wise men in Matthew chapter 2. It says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Think about what a huge contrast these groups of people are, right? On the one hand, God reveals this good news of great joy to common shepherds, right? These were like the most simple, most common people at that time. They were not powerful uh, or influential politically. They were not rich. They were not respected. They were not famous. They were not educated. They were kind of like the lowest rung on the socioeconomic ladder, right? But God speaks to them individually and says that, you know, have great joy because the Messiah, Christ the Lord, God come to earth in human flesh. He's arrived. And this isn't just good news in general. This is good news for you specifically. And then on the other hand, we see this other group of men, right? The wise men from the east. These men are rich. They're educated. They have a knowledge of the stars. They have time and money to take time off work and make a trip, you know, to a faraway land to give expensive gifts to a newborn king. And this great contrast, right, what does it do? It gives us insight into the universal nature of the salvation that Jesus brings into this world. It was a message of salvation and hope for all people, for all levels of society. It was salvation and hope for the richest of the rich, for the powerful, for the educated, and it was salvation and hope for the poorest of the poor, the simplest people in the world too, and everybody in between. We have those two extremes, but it's for everybody in between. You know, during my time in Hungary, for those of you who don't know, I, I, uh, I lived in Hungary for 10 years. I, we were doing church planting over there. Uh, during my time in Hungary, I, I started two churches. The first church we started was in the city of Eger. Now, Eger is like one of the most beautiful um, historic cities in Hungary. It's also one of the wealthier places in Hungary. It's a big wine region, so, you know, kind of like Napa. California, you know, a lot of wealthy people, a lot of vineyards and stuff like that. And our church there in Eger was made up mostly of white, middle-class Hungarians, you know. You know, in Hungary, really, uh, there are only two ethnic groups, right? There, there are the white Hungarians and the gypsies. And the gypsies, that, that's an actual ethnic group. A lot of people in the U.S. aren't sure what gypsies are. But gypsies are an ethnic group. They have their own language. They have their own culture. They make up about 10% of the population. Now, in some parts of Hungary, they make up a much greater percentage of the population. But really, they're the only significant minority group in Hungary. Uh, and there's a, there's a huge division culturally, um, you know, economically, between white Hungarians and gypsies. And gypsies usually have dark skin, and they usually live in these ghettos, right, in, in serious poverty. In, they have, usually they don't go to school, you know, they have really high crime rates. It's just a really tough culture. So we had this church in Eger, and we had mostly white Hungarians, you know, who attended that church. And, and you know, white Hungarians, they have uh, what, what we call white people problems, right? And uh, so... Then, then a few years later, after we started that church in Eger, we started a, a second church in the city of Hevesh, which is uh, to the south of Eger. It's kind of a daughter church of that first church we started uh, because we had people who were traveling up from this other region to attend our church, so we figured we'd start a Bible study for them in their own town. 
Uh, so we, we went down to this town. We started advertising, you know, that we're going to do this Bible study. And, uh, and we had all these gypsies show up. Because in that town, they're like 50, 60% gypsies. So um, these gypsies showed up, and we just ministered to them. And some of them gave their lives to the Lord. And then they started bringing all their friends. And pretty quickly, that Bible study that we had grew into a, a full-fledged church. And it was almost all gypsies. And, he, and we just decided that we're just going to embrace what it had become. You know, this is apparently what God wanted to do. We didn't plan on that, but that's what God wanted to do. So we just embraced it, and we actually moved the church from the center of town down into the, you know, gypsy side of town, the kind of the ghetto part of town. Uh, and it was, that's a pretty tough part of town. They used to have these guys who would wait outside for me to show up, and they'd kind of escort me in, and then they'd escort me back out and make sure I got on my way, you know, because it was uh, not a safe place to be if you didn't know somebody down there. But you know, in Egger, you know, like I said, people there, they had problems, but they were kind of like white people problems, right? Um, you know, down in Hevesh, though, I'm faced with all kinds of different problems that I never encountered when I was in, in church in Egger. You know, in Egger, people come up for prayer time after service, and they'd say, you know, hey, you know, pray for me. I'm just not reading my Bible enough. And so I'd pray for them, you know, or I'm struggling with purity on the internet, and I'd pray for them. But in Hevesh, you know, it's a whole different league of, of stiff stuff you're dealing with. I had this guy walk up to me once and say, uh, I stabbed somebody this week. Do you think that, that, that God can forgive me for that? You know what I mean? And I have people who were, you know, criminals and we had a lot of prostitutes who would attend our, our services. You know, a lot of thieves. I taught once on stealing and had tons of people come forward for prayer. You know what I mean? Um, People would talk about like, you know, this is my job. I just break into people's houses and steal their stuff and then pawn it off for money. You know, and, and so then we would see these people's lives get changed. People would repent of their sin. You know, people who had been living together for years, they would turn to Christ and get married. We saw prostitutes leave prostitution. We saw thieves stop stealing and actually go and get real jobs, you know. Um, we saw these people who are criminals be baptized and give their lives to Christ and be born again. It was great to see, you know. It was, it was so encouraging to see that happen. But, you know, many times I would hear people say, and I still hear people say stuff like this, you know. When you work with people like that, you know, really rough characters, that's when you really see God at work. They'd say, you know, it's a good thing you're ministering to those people because they really need Jesus. Well, I, I get where that's coming from, right? Because when you see these people turn to the Lord and turn away from a life of sin and start following Jesus, the change is very drastic. It's very visible. It's very noticeable. But at the same time, I never liked to hear those things. I never liked people saying that. Because, because think about what that person is saying when they say, those people really need Jesus, or you really see the work of God in that person's life. Well, what does that insinuate? Is it insinuating that there are some people who need Jesus more than other people, you know? Those guys, well, they really need Jesus. But, you know, the people up on Snob Hill, you know, they don't need Jesus as much. They're, they're doing pretty well as they are, you know? Well, uh, you know, well, is it insinuating that when a, when a prostitute or a thief repents of their sin and is born again to new life in Christ, that that's somehow a greater miracle than when a self-righteous, moralistic, good person 
stops trusting in themselves for their own salvation and redemption and puts their faith fully in Christ as their only hope for salvation? No, of course not, you know. The, the, the one change is drastic and, and flashy outwardly. The other one is just as huge. It's just as much a miracle when a self-righteous person stops trusting in themselves and starts trusting in Jesus as their righteousness. It's just as much as a miracle. The one's flashier than the other, but that's it. They're just as much a miracle. The message of the gospel is good news of great joy for all people. For the loners, for the losers, just as much as for the successful and the popular and the winners. For the rich, just as much as for the poor. For the minorities, just as much as for the majorities. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, right? The whole world. When we talk about mission field, this is another thing I realized being in Hungary. When we talk about mission field, you've got to understand God doesn't see borders. God sees individuals. And the whole world is his mission field. And he has one mission, and that's to reach every single one of them. Every single person. You know why? Because every single person is lost without him. Every single person is equally lost without him. Notice that for both the humble shepherds and for the wealthy wise men, the coming of Christ brought them great joy. For each of them, it was equally good news of great joy. For the, and it is still, to this day, good news of great joy for all people. It's good news for those who are suffering loss, who are surrounded by darkness. It's good news for those whose lives are going well. Things are going great. It's good news for the moral people. It's good news for the immoral people. It is the hope of salvation for all people, and it is the only hope of salvation for all people. So thirdly, let's talk about joy that overwhelms. We talked about joy in the midst of darkness, joy for all people. Now let's talk about joy that overwhelms. You know, in talking about these men here, these groups of men, the shepherds and the wise men, I want you to notice this. Both of these people, these groups of people, they were moved by what they felt. They were moved by the joy that they found. Both of them were so overwhelmed by the joy that it moved them to go out and leave whatever it was that they were doing at the time and go and find this one who had been born Savior of the world. Jesus told a parable in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. He said this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You know, I love the kingdom parables. I love the parables of Jesus because you have to put some real thinking into them to, to figure out what's really being said here. The questions we have to ask to understand this parable are this. Number one, what is the treasure here? What is the treasure? And number two, who is the man who finds the treasure and then sells everything he has so that he can obtain that treasure? And there are two main interpretations. The first interpretation says that the treasure is you. Then God is the man who gave up everything so that he could purchase you, so that he could gain you. And that's, that's true, actually, right? There's truth in that. That is the gospel, that God gave up everything to gain you. And th that's the gospel. God views you as a very precious treasure. The other interpretation, though, says that, that uh, the treasure is Christ. 
And the man is the ideal believer, right, who forsakes everything else so that he can obtain Christ. And that's actually biblical too, right? Paul himself, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. So which one is right? Which of these two interpretations? Well, you know me. I like uh, vanilla and chocolate, right? I think they're both right. Um, The parables of Jesus were so masterfully crafted, right, that they're able to have multiple meanings, that they were able to reveal truth on multiple levels. And the point is this. Here's the point of the parable. You are God's treasure. And he did everything so that you would be his. And he should be your greatest treasure. For which you would do anything that you might obtain him. For which you would forsake anything that you might obtain him. That you might take hold of the kingdom of God. He's the man in the parable here. He's so overcome by joy at what he's found that he goes and sells all he has that he might obtain that thing. You know, the point of the parable is both that God loved you so much that he became a man in order to gain you. He gave up his heavenly glory. He became a man. He was born as a baby. How absolutely humbling that must have been to become a totally helpless baby, to have to learn how to walk, to have to wear diapers, you know, that's, it's incredible. But, but the parable makes it clear. He did it out of joy. Isn't that incredible to think about? That he did it out of joy. He wasn't, you know, begrudgingly doing it because this is what the father made him do. Come on, son. Go down there. This is your job, you know. No, it says he did it out of joy. The prospect of redeeming you and making you his child brought him so much joy that he did this joyfully. You know, the writer of the Hebrews says the same thing, that Jesus, because of the joy set before him, endured the cross, suffering its shame. In other words, he, he considered the prospect of gaining you such a joy that he was willing to give up everything in order to gain you and bring you into his kingdom. But the other side of the coin, right, the other side of the parable, is that just as it costs God everything to give you the kingdom of God, In the same way, it will cost you everything in order to obtain the kingdom of God. Think about this. Grace is free. Grace is a free gift, but it's not cheap. Think about that. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. That's what this parable is saying. That it costs Jesus his life. It costs God everything. The cost was great. It wasn't cheap. And it's not cheap for you either. It will cost you everything to take hold of it. It will cost you your entire life. But it is a treasure that is worth obtaining at any cost necessary. Everything you've got. Every aspect of your life. Passing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know, Paul, that, that's from Paul's letter to the Philippians, right? That's Philippians chapter 3. F- Paul's letter. And you got to know this, that he wrote that letter from prison. He writes this letter from prison. And what does the letter talk about? When he's not talking about joy, he's talking about how he has given up everything to follow Christ. How he suffered 
everything in order to serve. What an amazing statement that is. And it's a statement that Paul can make for one reason. And the reason is this. Jesus Christ was his greatest treasure. Jesus Christ was the reason for his joy. Because through Jesus Christ, his sins had been... Corinthians, he says, I am sorrowful, but always rejoicing. I am poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. You know, his sense of joy was this deep-seated and unshaken joy. It was unshaken by the difficulties he experienced in life because his treasure was not of this world. You know, a lot of times we ask people, are you a Christian, you know? Do you believe in Jesus? Are you saved? But, but these questions can be easily misconstrued and misunderstood. Maybe a better question to ask would be, is Christ your greatest treasure? That really gets to the root, the heart of the issue, right? Is Christ your greatest treasure? Because there are many people who, who believe in Christ in, in theory, right? But they haven't given their life to him. He isn't their treasure, And they haven't found in him the joy that the angels sang of because he is not their greatest treasure. They haven't yet found in him the joy that the angels sang of when they proclaimed that the coming of Jesus was good news of great joy for all people. So I'll finish up today by encouraging you to ask yourself that question. Is Christ your greatest treasure Have you found in him the joy that the angels sang of? The joy that outshines the darkness because it's rooted in the hope that a new day is dawning. You know, I pray for that for all of us today. That the fact that Jesus has come, the fact that he is coming again, that it would be for us good news of great joy. And may that joy overwhelm us. May it move us. And may it define the way that we live. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you that with your coming, Lord, it's the promise that a new day is dawning, that things are changing, that a new order is coming in. And Lord, we long for that time, especially when we live in the midst of darkness, Lord, and and especially when we see tragedy happening, when we experience tragedy ourselves, Lord. We long for that new day to dawn. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the bright and morning star. And Lord, thank you that with your coming 2,000 years ago, Lord, the dawn began. And Lord, we ask that your kingdom would come quickly. But until then, Lord, let our hope be rooted in the promise of the kingdom. Let our hope be rooted in your faithfulness to keep all of your promises. And Lord, may that well up within us springs of joy. Lord, joy that's not shaken by our circumstances, Lord. Lord, I pray that all of us would know that joy. I pray for anyone here who has not yet given their life to you, who who would not be able to say that Christ is their greatest treasure and their source of their joy. Lord, I pray that for them, they would come to know you as that. And Lord, I pray for those of us who do know you, Lord. Let us magnify you. Let us glorify you by making you our all-satisfying greatest treasure.